to the last message uh, in this brief series on the deacons. And uh, so next week, uh, I am going to return to our series on the Gospel of Mark. So we come finally to the qualifications as they are spelled out for us in Paul's epistle to Timothy, the first epistle to Timothy. We are going to read from chapter 3, verses 8 through chapter 13, excuse me, through verse 13. He didn't write 13 chapters. <laughs> so 8 through 13. I do want to make a comment. Uh, you may want to make sure your Bibles remain open as we proceed this morning because there are going to be some references uh, in other places, uh, like, for example, chapter 6, as well, and a number of references in the very first chapter in terms of our message this morning. So there's going to be some attention given to some other verses as this passage stands sort of like almost in the middle of the book. So please listen to the holy infallible word of God, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, not sober, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is a joy in the heart of the believer to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. There is even a office within the church that shows that service in a wonderful way in a wonderful way of mercy and grace to others. We ask, O oh Lord, that we would see ourselves, even as a congregation, united with the deacons in this church and their service to others. And, O oh Lord, even enable us to help and assist in ways that are helpful to them and to the body of Christ. In Christ's name, amen. If you believe in the infallibility 
of God's word from Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. Then Paul's writings are obviously included. Specifically, I am thinking here of the first two epistles to Timothy. In this brief series on the office of deacon, we have stressed that Christ is the head of the church in which his energizing source in serving the life of of his church, his bride, is the Holy Spirit. One way Christ energizes his spirit is to place Paul's penmanship under the Spirit's directive by placing before us the organizing order that is needed in his body, which is the church. Indeed, Christ governs the world and the church from his position of present glory, ministering to us through his Spirit as all of us come into the creation as a pilgrim, suffering people, whom his Spirit will bring each of us eventually to Christ's everlasting glory. That is the clear biblical pattern of Christ's church, living in union with Christ. And as we have noted, there is no hierarchy in Christ's church on earth, but in a flock of equals, the Lord bestows gifts upon the church which are recognized by the body of Christ for its efficient ministries, organization, and life. The teaching elder is to preach and pray. We saw this last week in Acts chapter 6, verse 4. The ruling elder who governs over the body of Christ for the sake of the purity of Christ's body in doctrine, life, and government. And the deacons who serve mercy ministry to those in need. We looked at that specifically last week in Acts 6, verses 1 through 7. We want to note that Paul's instruction about the characteristics of the deacon occurs in what is known as Paul's pastoral epistles. He is right here telling us how we, the church, is to function in a pastorate manner. As Christ's servant to the Gentiles, Paul is delegated by Christ to present the specific traits for the elder and deacon as the church is expanding into the world and as the church goes into the future. And that is placed before us, the church of Jesus Christ, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. In God's providence, we have before us Timothy, the pupil of Paul and fellow elder. 
being given instructions from Paul about conducting his ministry in Ephesus to the Ephesian church. We, are, we do not know the specific reason for the occasion of this first epistle to Timothy, but we do know that Paul provides wisdom on several issues in support of Timothy's ministry to the Ephesian church. For example, Paul begins with a specific charge to Timothy. What is the charge? What is the specific charge? That Timothy is not to permit persons to teach a different doctrine a different gospel than the one Paul entrusted to Timothy and to the Ephesian body. That's in chapter 1, how he starts, verse 3. Furthermore, the Ephesians need to get away from devoting themselves to what Paul calls myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations. Chapter 1, verse 4. Although we do not know the specifics about the speculations here, we can see that the content in chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, is noted to be tied to Paul's words in chapter 4, as well as the final chapter of this epistle, chapter 6. Chapter 4, verse 7, 6, 3 through 8, and the very end, chapter 6, verse 20. As Paul's epistle comes to a close, he expands upon the concerns he had when he opened the epistle. You can tell that these concerns are playing heavy now upon Paul's heart for Christ's church. Paul's instruction to Timothy concerning the conduct of the Ephesian church is quite profound. You want to note the imperative that Paul uses to Timothy in chapter 6, verse 2c. Teach and urge or exhort, encourage these things. What things? What things? Congregation, I'm going to read verses 3 through 8 there in chapter 6. I want you to give careful attention to what his concern is. And notice, you know, he is quite frank about what Timothy must do as a pastor. If anyone, starting there in 6.3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, 
slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means to gain. But, verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Paul then issues a final summary in the imperative to Timothy that reflects upon his previous concern here. This imperative gives further insight into the situation in the Ephesian church. You may want to turn over and look there at the very end, chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. What is interesting about the narrative is that Paul never, never does provide the specifics of what is being exactly taught about doctrine or the discussion surrounding myths and genealogies. Paul merely references that their doctrine is different than the soundness, the text says, the soundness of the very words of Christ and his gospel, while the content of their teaching has nothing more than empty platitudes about their own godliness for their own personal gain. Gain. Paul is very specific about the characteristics of such people in the church and the effects of their teaching, knowledge, and attitude upon the body of Christ. If you were daydreaming, let me repeat from chapter 6. They are puffed up with conceit, and really understand nothing. With this personality, they crave controversy, quarreling, which produces envy, dissension, slander, evil evil suspicions, constant friction within Christ's church. Now, do not miss this. Since Paul provides nothing about the real specifics, about their undermining the gospel presented by Christ, several scholars conclude that the teachers whom he singles out are not worthy of a response even. After all, their teaching is so full of babbling and contradictions taking some away from the faith. Chapter 6, verse 20. That's Paul's comment about them. 
Paul also suggests that their babbling and contradictions have entered their teaching and understanding of the law of God. Going back to chapter 1, verse 7. They think they understand God's law, but in reality they do not even have a clue. Also, there seems to be some form of aesthetic life coming from their teaching in which they lie to others, demanding that marriage, marriage, be forbid, and abstinence from eating food which God created to be eaten with thanksgiving. That is all mapped out in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Now, by this point, (laughs) you are probably thinking, what does this have to do with deacons? (laughs) Where are we going here? (laughs) Well, let me just inform you, everything, (laughs) everything, Christ the head of his church is coming to Paul from his glorified state through the energy of his spirit to organize the church in this continuing sinful creation of sin as sin will always make its way into the church. Indeed, deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons will constantly seduce the body of Christ until he comes. Paul points this out clearly in this situation of the Ephesian church. They're going through this, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Satan is still at work in the church in Christ church chapter 4 verse 15 but we have a promise yes a precious promise from Christ himself that Satan cannot prevail so congregation hold on (laughs) hold on the church is built upon nothing less than the cornerstone of Christ. And upon nothing less than the foundation of the true confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And upon that cornerstone, and upon that foundation, is the construction of the order, the organization, and the governing body of the church to maintain the ministry that is glorious and sacred to Christ and his gospel. In this epistle, do you not see what is clearly being laid out Before you, the cornerstone is Christ. The foundation 
is the true confession of Christ's identity. The construction of church order is one organic unity, including the elders and the deacons, impeding, impeding Satan's power to totally overcome Christ's church. On the issue of church order, Calvin has a great has great insight, which is easily applied to the Ephesian church. I have placed that quote in your outline. There is nothing in which order should be more diligently observed than in the establishing the government of the church. For nowhere is there greater pearl if anything is done irregularly. Congregation, Paul urges Timothy to remain at Ephesus at the beginning of this epistle. You've got to stay there. You've got to stay there. The church needs you. Paul wishes Timothy to remain because of those teachers who are not presenting the gospel of Christ correctly as well as they blather nonsense about myths and genealogies. Chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. These teachers are doing this rather than Yes, rather than note the very important contrast in chapter 1, verse 4. Rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. These men of conceit, and personal gain have no understanding of living their life, living their faith in a life of stewardship over the body of Christ as true faith is an expression of living out of our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. And what is the aim What is the aim of the stewardship of faith in the life of the church? If you want to look, look at 1.5. The aim of our charge, which comes from Christ, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. This is the charge to the officers of the church who live by faith in the gospel of Christ. They are stewards of the body of Christ in the love of Christ. One's 
heart, one's conscience and faith must, yes, must be in conformity to what Paul will say later to Timothy, must be in conformity to the very word of Christ. By now, I hope, it is clear to all of us what Christ teaches as the central truth about stewardship, servanthood, discipleship. Deny self, take up your cross, and follow Christ. Matthew 16, 24. And if you were listening carefully, that's repeated clearly in the first John passage that we read this morning together. Do you see it? In the turmoil of what is going on in the Ephesian church, Christ, through his spirit, is laying out clearly the character and qualifications of the elder who are stewards of Christ's word and the people who receive and live by that word through faith in Christ. These qualifications are important to be followed because if they are not, do not be surprised that the church will have a steady diet of people who are conceited, pursuing their own gain, and causing much disruption that causes many to leave the faith. Chapter 6, verse 21, very, at the very end of this epistle comes that warning. So with respect to being stewards of the preaching of the word and governing the church, Paul presents in the Holy Spirit the qualifications of the elders, which will apply both to the teaching and ruling elders, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Moreover, he will present the qualifications for the office of deacon as stewards of the ministry to those who are need, chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, which we read together this morning. That's right there. Now, don't miss, in a sense, (laughs) I don't have (laughs) and didn't do the study to see if this is, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, an inclusio. (laughs) But it is. You do want to see in terms of where I have gone this morning, in terms of the beginning of the epistle and the end of the epistle, that this is right in the middle. This is right in the middle concerning the organization of the church. The qualifications of the elder and the deacon. So as you go through the list, you cannot miss how the qualifications are a complete contrast to the personalities that is putting the Ephesian church in danger. Deacons must be dignified. 
worthy of respect, honorable, very positive. Paul is there. Now, starting with the negative, but should be understood as positive. (laughs) Understood as positive. Not double-tongued. Insincere. Saying one thing and meaning another is the idea. Not addicted to wine. Obviously, not a drunkard. Must be sober-minded. Not greedy. For dishonest gain, greedy for money, verse 8. Furthermore, a deacon must hold on to, preserve, keep the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, verse 9. Their conscience must not be compromised concerning the revelation of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Verse 9, with its directive for the deacon, corresponds with what Paul is saying throughout this epistle about sound doctrine. It's a commitment, commitment to the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. For Paul, the term mystery in verse 9 is used to designate the revelation of the Son of God in history, which was hidden from the foundation of the world and hidden during the process of God's revelation about the coming Messiah in the Old Testament. Well, once again, to hear from Calvin... Calvin points out it is absurd for any man to hold office in Christ's church who is unskilled in the teaching of the gospel found in the scriptures. Those who hold office need to know the word of God. Paul definitely highlights that the unskilled is endangering the Ephesian church. And many are leaving the faith because of them. Hence you can see why Paul says that for a man to be a deacon He must be tested, going on to verse 10. In fact, such men will have have been tested by the false teaching and the endless babbling and contradictions being presented to the Ephesian church. Such a deacon candidate must have proved to be blameless, Paul says, in such an environment. Indeed, a deacon must be in full command of the gospel as he ministers to those in need. He must truly understand what the gospel is about and live the gospel as he provides Christ's love and counsel to the needy. There is a wonderful classic book about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, just so highly respected. 
in reform circles. It's called The Glorious Body of Christ, written by R.B. Kuyper. I have a quote there from Kuyper concerning the office of deacon. The office deacon is preeminently that of love. Love is its beginning and its end. What kind of love? Not the love which the world will always in contradiction present, but the selfless love as gift and servant that is only found in the flowing, flowing from Christ's glory into his church by the power of his Holy Spirit. I want you to see something at this point. This emphasis about Christ's glory to the church that is suffering, returning to glory. Can you put yourself back into the Old Testament, you see? What keeps Israel going in their wilderness journey? The glory cloud and the pillar by night, which represents what? The presence of the Holy Spirit. Do you understand what is happening here in terms of this language that I am using before you this morning and I've been using them the last two weeks is that Christ now is in glory. He sends that glory, his glory to the church energized by the spirit. But this time, don't look in the clouds. (laughs) Don't go out there looking at a cloud and following it. Guess where it is? It's in you. You're the temple, the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. And that's true of the officers of the church as well as all of you in the church. We're talking about nothing to take light of, of the spirit of Christ being in each of you and also placed in the officers of the church to carry the church along in the power of the spirit. Do you see what John is saying in his epistle? It's the spirit of Christ in you. Then how can you not love one another? It's your energy. Be a little sarcastic. Christians don't need an energy drink. You just need the Holy Spirit. (laughs) It's the issue. 
Indeed, it's a selfish love as gift and servant that is only found flowing from Christ's glory into his church by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thus, the deacon's home must give evidence of a covenantal lifestyle with the Lord, a husband of one wife, in the management of their covenant children, in right living before the Lord. Verse 12. In light of the nature of the deacon's service to others, Paul provides a directive about the deacon's wife, who may be privy to a lot of information. The wife must be dignified, respected, honorable, at the same level as her husband. The same Greek word is used here for the wife as used for the male deacon in verse 8. The same word. She is not to be a slanderer, but sober-minded and self-control, faithful, trustworthy, and dependable in all things that surrounds a respectable life in the gospel. Well, finally, verse 13. Paul is aware that the activities of the deacons in Christ's church will be noticed. After all, those who have become deacons were recognized for meeting the qualifications and gifts by Christ's church for the office of deacon. Paul does not hold back. Those who serve well the people in need in the church will gain, obtain a good, respectful standing before the body of Christ. And their confidence and faith in Christ will be strengthened. Yes, the deacons see their service, interprets their service, only towards the glory of a confident, everlasting faith in Christ. Not only for their own service, but for everyone in the household of Christ's eternal body, the church. The deacon is an essential office in Christ's church in which Christ demonstrates his position of present glory to energize the church through the Holy Spirit, his spirit in the precious care of the needy, in mercy ministry to the body of Christ as we enter into our own eternal inheritance of the glorified Redeemer. What a wonderful office. What a wonderful blessing. 
Christ has given to us in the church, in that office. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we are so thankful for this office that thou hast raised up. How it is part of that in which the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be the vision, the vision of love, the love of Christ that conquers hate, division, dissension in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, O Lord, to be a church that respects the office and help us, O Lord, to be a congregation that supports the office in any way that we can. Let us have eyes to see and hearts that act. In Christ's name, amen.